Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Job chapter 42, Job's response to the divine speeches and the narrative epilogue, the conclusion. And we're joined today by Dr. Carol Newsom. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. Carol Newsom is the Charles Howard Candler Professor Emerita of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology. And I am incredibly excited to have her (laughs) on the podcast here to to finish up our discussion of the book of Job. This is certainly one of those situations where it's last but not least Mm -hmm. at all. Um, Carol is, in my view, uh, one of the most influential scholars on the book of Job, at least for me personally, um, behind my supervisor, Catherine Dell. Uh, her, book here, uh, her book here, The Book of Job, A Contest of Moral Imaginations, is one of my favorite books uh, on the book of Job. Uh, and I mean, it's it's deep. And so for many listeners, it might be a little bit much to take on, but if you can dive into it, there's just so much richness there for understanding Job. And we'll get to some of that, uh, why I find it so helpful as we go along in her discussion. But if you want something slightly more accessible, uh, but bigger, but it's a lift. It's not the whole book. Um, uh, within this large volume, the New Interpreter's Bible, Volume Four, uh, is her commentary on Job, and, and that's more accessible. Uh, and it also includes reflections on the theological meaning and the application of the book, which could be really helpful for for people who are thinking about Bible studies or sermons or other things uh, like that. So Carol is one of these people who seems to me to be just constantly ransacking the world, looking for new ideas uh, that she can apply to understanding the Bible uh, in new and interesting, fascinating ways. And so I'm always excited to read her work and now to have the opportunity to talk with her in person about Job. It's just um, a great moment for me personally. Yeah, well, I'll say that uh, Carol's Carol's work ranges not only in Hebrew Bible, but also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, I mean, she's a very influential scholar on uh, on some of the Qumran literature. Right. So there's been um, some overlap. So I've, 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 yeah. I've, I've been forced to engage with Carol's work. <laughs> and, 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 you know, delighted to as well, of course. Well, I have learned from your work as well, so it's mutual. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for being with us today, Carol. Uh, the first question we like to start with is... What first drew you to Job? You put a lot of time into into thinking about Job. How did you get here? Well, when I first got my job at Emory, they called me up and they said, well, you're replacing the person who taught wisdom literature, so you'll be teaching a course on wisdom literature. I had not studied wisdom literature in my graduate program, so it was um, simply I had to learn enough in order to teach my class. And once I got involved in teaching this class regularly, Job quickly became just a a fascinating text for me. So it was teaching that led me into wanting to do writing about Job. Could you talk a little bit more about what it was that fascinated you about Job initially? Mm -hmm. Um, I kept realizing how I wasn't 
fully understanding the book. And every time I would read it, something about it would push back on me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm trying to make it say this because I'd like for it to say that, but I'm not so sure that's what it's saying. Mm-hmm. And I would say that has been a lifelong challenge to really listen to the book as well as the fact that it engages you so much that you do find yourself in dialogue with it. Yeah, yeah and I think we'll come back to that as we mm-hmm. look at uh, how some of these crucial verses here mm-hmm. in chapter 42 are interpreted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you see Job chapter 42 fitting into the book as a whole? Um, <laughs> does it provide a fitting conclusion, you think? Oh, you know, in one sense... It sort of is, it's like the end of a symphony, you know, when all of the instruments play together and it's telling you, this is the wrap up, this is the conclusion, let's bring out the bass drums and the strings and everything. But of course, it has just um, come in out of nowhere almost because we've been involved in this um incredible poetry uh, between God and Job. So, I think we have to go back and think about the structure of the book as a whole, because um, as obviously your readers, uh, the people who've been listening to your podcast know, it starts out with this prose tale, and then that prose tale gets interrupted by this large section of demanding poetry, and then suddenly at the end, back comes the prose. So, I don't know, uh, at least when I was a little girl growing up, I had these funny little um, cartoon-like books, which had pictures of animals, but every page was cut into three segments. And so, you could flip one segment and not another. So, you might have something that had the head of a horse, but then you could turn the page and get the body of a bear and then the feet of a duck. (laughs) So, reading the book of Job is a little bit like having one of those books, except we've got the head of the, uh, well, let's say the head of the horse, and then the body of the chicken, and then the feet of the horse come back in. (laughs) And you have to say, I knew how to fit those together if it's all a horse, but how do I fit them together when they're two such different things? So, I think in part, that ending, despite the fact that it looks like it's a wrap-up, if anything, it's drawing us back to the reminder that things don't entirely wrap up so easily. Mm -hmm. I don't think it wants us just to say, okay, now, got that, I can move on. Okay. So, So, it's disturbing. Right. Okay. So some people don't like the epilogue mm-hmm. uh, because they think it ties everything up too neatly. At the yeah. End. yeah. But, but you actually think that the way that the epilogue creates this kind of dissonance with mm-hmm. what we are, have become accustomed to in the book up to that point, mm-hmm. it, it puts the reader on their back foot in, in a yeah. way. Okay. Yeah. So we have to negotiate it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, so we've got to figure out because it's it's not going to make things easy for us. And so, therefore, it both fits and it doesn't fit. And um, I think we have to stay with that tension and sort of see where it leads us, but also recognize that because it doesn't let us wrap things up, this is what keeps us going back and rereading the book. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah. So when you're reading chapter 42, and we're going to get into the yeah. into detail in a second, but just to get started, what for you in this chapter is the most difficult okay. interpretive issue? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'll say one thing about what I've discovered in teaching mm-hmm. is that um, probably as you were suggesting, when I teach this, a lot of my students did not like the ending. And so I would try to listen and see what it was that was irritating them about it. And I realized they were still focused on they didn't like what God had said to Job. And they didn't like the fact that then it just seemed to move to the happy ending. Mm -hmm. And so they were really hung up on how God appears in the Mm -hmm. epilogue. And that's a perfectly legitimate thing to be focused on. But I said, what if? We put that aside for a minute and say, let's look at Job. Job doesn't say a single word during the epilogue. It alludes to him praying on behalf of his friends, but we don't hear anything from him. It tells us he named his daughters, but we don't hear his words. All we can go on as to what his state of mind is, is what he does. And when I suggest people read it that way, they hear something really different in the epilogue because they look at this person who has discovered that the world is not at all the way he thought it was, the way he wanted it to be. He's experienced incredible loss. And what are the major things that he does? He welcomes the family that have come. He eats with them. He um, uh, he has... Um, he has sex again with his wife because they bring 10 more children into the world. And so the, um, uh, what he does is to re-embrace life. Mm-hmm. And so I asked the students, I said, if we are just shift to looking at that, how do we think about what the epilogue might mean? Because I think it means something different when we stop just focusing on our judgments about God. Okay. So and the, in that sense, it can in some ways be a really fascinating conclusion because it reminds us of the stories of other survivors hmm. who have had a choice about whether they're going to live out the rest of their lives in moral bitterness yep. or whether they're going to say, I've, I've lost a lot, but I'm still going to embrace life. So yeah. that just makes it a very different kind of ending. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it points to two things. One is one of the things that I appreciate about your book, uh, A Contest of Moral Imaginations, is you take the the struggles that people have had with interpreting Job mm-hmm. and you turn them around into opportunities to mm-hmm. understand the book in a deeper way, which you've just demonstrated to mm-hmm. us right here. But then secondly, that one way to think about how the book as a whole fits together is that with suffering for Job mm-hmm. comes isolation. Right. Isolation yes. from his community, isolation mm-hmm. from God. So one of the things that we're seeing in the epilogue is his rejoining community mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and potentially uh, his restoration of his relationship with God. Can you all clarify what is it about the ending? And maybe we're going to get about, about to get into this, but what is it about the ending that some people say doesn't fit with what comes before? Yeah, well, could you kind of elaborate when your friend, when your students, uh, yeah, are struggling with it? You said they struggle with the depiction of God, but what is it exactly that they're wrestling uh, with? Well, they don't think. And again, 
how you read the epilogue depends a lot on how you read the divine speeches and Job's response to them. So, um, if they have not been satisfied with the divine speeches, then they feel as though Job's questions have not been answered, that he hasn't been adequately addressed, and that he's getting just a payoff at the mm-hmm. end. Right. And so, for them, it's not a resolution of the issues that they have been engaged in. But as I say, so much depends on how uh, people understand what's gone before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's also people who will read it and they'll be disappointed because the Job who wrestles with God mm-hmm. is this kind of tragic hero. And they kind of wish that the book had just ended there. Yeah. And it's disappointing. It's a letdown. It's anticlimactic for right. him mm-hmm. to no longer be that tragic hero, right. but for him to accept this restitution from God and just go back into normal life. Right, but that's right. not the kind of narrative right, that they want right. the story. Because to how is it a true test of his piety? Yeah. Right. In the very beginning, if in the end it all works out. Right. Those who see the book attacking this doctrine of retribution. Yeah. Yeah. Then it just reinforces retribution. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what the friend said was going to happen. Sure <laughs> yeah. So we, we might be able to circle back to some okay. of those issues. Yeah. It's, 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 I think we've gone through a number of the different ways in which people might find it disturbing. And um, yeah, every time you come to it, you read something different that you hadn't quite thought about before. Yeah. So let's look at uh, 42, two to four. So we, we've, mm-hmm. looked, we've listened to God's great speeches to Job, whether uh, we can figure out exactly what God is mm-hmm. trying to communicate mm-hmm. there. You can listen to our previous episode with okay. Bill Brown uh, and, and think through those questions, but here's how Job responds. He says, I know I'm reading the NRSV here. Mm-hmm. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then we've got it appears to be a quotation. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Mm-hmm. And back to, we. it appears, Job's speech. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then another apparent quotation. Here, and I will speak. Mm-hmm. I will question you, and you declare to me. Okay, we'll just stop there for now. Okay, yeah. What is going on there with these apparent quotations that Job is using in his response to God? Mm -hmm. This is one of the few clues we have as to what he thinks about what he has just heard. And obviously, it does mean that he has been really taking in what he understands God to have said. And so, he's going back and he recapitulates a little bit each perspective. He he almost embodies the God perspective talking to him. Mm-hmm. And so, he's saying, I recognize that. And I did um, speak about things that I haven't understood. So, it seems to indicate he's undergoing a certain kind of shift in perspective um, and at least entertaining that the perspective that he had previously brought is not the only possible perspective, perhaps not the most adequate perspective. So, you see someone who we, he doesn't tell us substantively what it is he's gotten. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, 
I think that the author doesn't want Job to do our work for us. Okay. <laughs> so, this is, we're all listening to say, what, what, could you please explain God's speech to me? And Job clearly indicates that something has shifted in him and in, in that experience. But he does it so elusively that we are not off the hook for thinking ourselves about what was it we just heard. Right. But it does signal a shift, I think. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned the influence of your work on my thinking on Job. And one of the big things is this idea of dialogue Mm -hmm. in Job. So here we have um, in Job's response to God, the fact that he speaks with God's word, he's he's kind of incorporating dialogue even Mm -hmm. into his response to Job Mm -hmm. is a a pointer to how crucial that is throughout the book. Mm -hmm. You want to elaborate Mm -hmm. on that at all? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this book, I mean, this book is a um, an exercise in um, incorporating different perspectives into a complex understanding, because I don't think any of the voices that speak in this book are there just to be dismissed. I think each one of them has something that is true to say, mm-hmm. but here where Job had been so certain of his own position. Now he's having that relativized, at least, by participating in the divine perspective. So, yeah, he's seeing things from a different perspective, though it's not clear that anyone could absorb and work through the significance of all of that in an instant. So, I think it's just gesturing to what is probably the beginning of of a process right and so it's it's an acknowledgement here that this search for meaning search for truth Mm -hmm. emerges through conversation with another yeah Uh, Mm -hmm. and and one of the things that carol points to is we as readers get drawn into Mm -hmm. that conversation Mm -hmm. so she's already alluded to Mm -hmm. this a couple times and it's going to come up again i imagine Mm -hmm. that the way that the book is written pulls us into that so we're seeing at this already in in Mm -hmm. intro Right. And we see that then in verse five, (laughs) because he has just uh, recapitulated in some way what God says when he quotes and he says, I had uh, when he says uh, here and I will speak now in verse five, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Yeah. Now, Carol, what's the difference between Job's former knowledge and perhaps some new knowledge that he's gained by sight? Is that different than the knowledge he's had by hearing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting how they use hearing and seeing because these are both recognized as um, ways in which people gain knowledge and understanding. Mm-hmm. And it's not clear really that one or the other is completely privileged over the other in uh, Hebrew tradition. But in this theophany, that's an immediate encounter with the divine. And so even though it's uh, in, obviously we're in a literary book, it's all words. Um, but, but it has that quality of immediacy. And so I think that's what he names by seeing. And so previously, the hearing, I think, is more the, um, if you will, what he has assumed, what tradition has taught him, even what his own constructions of reality have led him to think. But all of that has been, if you will, a human construction of God and the divine in the world. And in this, which is deeply experiential, 
he comes across another way of apprehending reality, which has challenged and transformed what he thought he knew. And I think many people have had those moments in their lives in which some powerful experience really rearranges your sense Mm. of the world. So I I think that he is, again, signaling that something fundamental has shifted for him, though we're not told exactly what. (laughs) But is is that shift for him dependent on revelation then? Yeah. And and what's behind my question Mm -hmm. is this idea that in the quote-unquote wisdom uh, yeah, literature, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, revelation is put aside because mm-hmm. wisdom literature is focusing on rationalism and universalism. Mm-hmm. But do you think that this job here towards the end is, is actually privileging revelation? Um, that may depend on, you know, on what we mean by revelation. Um, I, I, what I would like here is the term encounter, and I'm thinking both about um, Karl Barth, and he's talking about God as the holy other. And so, this is the the revelatory moment that explodes your categories and your assumptions. Mm-hmm. And so, it is the the overwhelming. Um, uh, Rudolf Otto also speaks of this, you know, the uh, the mysterious nature of the divine. And so, um, that I think is, and yes, I do think that it is a challenge to a book like Proverbs, which seems much more confident about analogy and, um, the, the, the similarity between human wisdom and divine wisdom. And here, I think one comes up against an expression of the limits of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last question on this first, because yeah. I, I mean, I love this first and I think yeah. Crucial for our understanding of the book. Um, some will see this when he talks about knowing God by hearing that mm-hmm. former knowledge. They'll see that as what's reflected in the prologue. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. what we see here is what Job's his experience of God emerges yeah. through the dialogues and then ultimately yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To him in the divine speeches. Do you have any thoughts on that way of understanding this first? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in in one sense, um, I mean, Job has had two different ways of thinking about God. One in the prologue, in which he is the model of uh, I call this the Buddhist Job, um, the Job of non attachment to you know <laughs> uh, to everything. Um, but it's it's a it's a mode of thinking about God that allows him to incorporate. Um, uh, trauma and disaster without feeling alienated from God, but he discovers he can't hold on to that. Mm-hmm. And so, the middle part, he has a different way of thinking about God, anger at the failure of reciprocity, of justice, of apparent caring. And so, yeah, I think that this uh, shock here encompasses or explodes the uh, the the categories by which he thought about God in both the dialogue and the prologue. The epilogue, and this goes back to what the epilogue's doing there, this is not going to be just a return to the status quo ante. He is not going back to the same place that he was before. All right, here we go. 
42 6. <laughs> Here's the million dollar question. Uh, how do we understand 42 6? Let me read it for you in yeah. the RSV translation just to get us started. Uh, RSV says, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So that's the NRSV, but there are about as many translations of this verse as there are scholars who have attempted to translate this verse. Could you walk us through some of the ways uh, that it could be translated and then talk to us a little bit about how you personally prefer to translate it? You know, for the longest time, we thought we knew what this verse meant. And then a while back, a scholar named Dale Patrick said, guess what? It's really not that simple. And so he went through a number of different ways. And ever after that, that's what gave rise to people saying, wow, it's really ambiguous. Now, Uh the analogy I like comes from Monty Python's Life of Brian, which is a great theological text. (laughs) And uh, if you remember that scene at the um, Sermon on the Mount, uh, we can hear Jesus talking, but we're with the crowd way back at the edge, and they can't quite hear what's going on. And they're trying to make out what he said. I said, what is this? Blessed are the cheesemakers? Or <laughs> the Greeks will inherit the earth? So we, when we read verse 6, we're sort of like that. We can see the words on the page, but it's really difficult to make sense of them. In part because, apart from the first word, therefore, <laughs> everything else can be translated in a variety of ways. Yeah. And so, once again, we're back to putting this piece with that piece with that piece. Now, I think that the NRSV, and I think that goes back to the King James Version as well, that one is almost certainly not right. Okay. <laughs> um, even, though, start here. <laughs> even though it's the most familiar, it's almost certainly not right. And we'll sort of get into that. Um, let me just go through each of the words and say a little bit about why they're so ambiguous. The first word that the NRSV translates as, therefore, I despise myself. There's no myself in the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that word that means despise can mean despise. It basically means, it's a kind of a visceral word, and it means, ooh, I have a uh, a gut feeling of dislike or distaste or disgust. And so, it's a visceral word, but it normally has an object. I don't like or I have a repugnance for or, or a repudiation of something. Here, it's just used. There's no object. Now, it can have an assumed object, and that's what the NRSV does. Other people will say, no, no, he doesn't mean I despise myself. He means, ooh, I dislike and I reject my words, what I've been saying, which right. might go well with the what we've just been talking about, a change in, in view. Right. So, people who, who read yeah. it that way might translate it, recant. Or yeah, yeah. Although that's a little heady, uh, <laughs> whereas this is... Um, I don't like, you know, what I've said. So it's, um, uh, and there are others who, um, well, we'll come to a couple of the radical ones in a minute. Let's stick with the. Uh, <laughs> now, Recant the, sounds like a heresy trial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. 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 And so, but, but there are people who read the book of Job as having a lot of legal language in mm-hmm. it. And so that would be a term that would fit in well with that construal. Right. Now, the next word I think is really crucial. Um, 
in Hebrew, it's the word that has to do with basically changing one's mind or grasp of a situation and one's disposition toward it. So it can mean, um, I've changed my mind. It can mean, um, I regret that my disposition has changed in that way. It can also mean, um, I am comforted in that I've changed my disposition or my relationship to uh, a situation of loss. And these are all really well attested uh, forms. I find consolation. So that uh, that's a, a way of talking about it. I think that repent, although it's not outside the bounds, that's a little more theological than it's mostly used for. <laughs> but it does, again, it's consistent with what we're seeing is that Job does seem to be saying, I've shifted in some regard. Now, we'll leave that one where it stands for a minute, because I'll come back to that. That the last few words, upon dust, uh, or let's see, uh, the NRSV again was... Uh, uh, in I, dust and ashes. In dust and ashes. Okay. No, it's not in. It is either <laughs> upon or concerning. Right. Um, now, the whole dust and ashes thing, it's only used like three times in the whole Bible. And it's very clear. Abraham uses it back in Genesis. And he's clearly using it to mean human beings in their materiality, where our bodiliness, our, our, we're made from dust, and ashes, that sense of decay or dissolution. So it has to do with the human condition mm-hmm. as mortal limited. And it's oftentimes used in, as he does there, in contrast to the divine. So some people would say this can mean concerning the human condition or concerning frail humanity. Um, it can also have some connotation of uh, uh, humility edging over into humiliation. Um, I'm just going to read for yeah. us uh, Genesis 18:27. This is God has told Abraham that he is planning to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham's trying to argue God down, and he yeah. says, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, right? Yeah. So using that idiom to, to, to talk about his distance ontologically, yeah. perhaps from God, mm-hmm. his humiliation before God. And I think that's another clue. It fits in with what we were talking about in the previous verses, that Job has had an encounter with um, the holy other God. And so now somehow he's thinking also in terms of what it means to be a human being um, in the light of this encounter and God's description of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So how do you locate and and think about human existence in that context. So we've got some clues by which we may be able to make some of these possible translations less likely in context. Um, Now, I want to go back to the fact that this word, um, I'll use the Hebrew, nichamti, when he says, I've changed my mind or I'm comforted or not. That word came up very critically in the prose tale, because mm-hmm. when Job's friends come to him initially, they come to comfort and console him. 
And so now he uses that word again. The friends had not succeeded in comforting and consoling him. Now he says he is, and his actions following indicate that he is. Now, for this, though, we need to say, because that term, comforted or consoled, uh, that's very culturally specific. And what people would mean about it in contemporary Western culture, it's, it is, it's not necessarily the meaning that it would have here. Um, but I think we'd recognize what they're talking about. It does not mean, and so I feel fine. <laughs> it does not mean I'm happy. Uh, what it means is at following my ritual period of mourning and grieving, uh, which is an absolutely essential part of dealing with loss. But there comes a point in which we have to resume ordinary life again. And so traditionally, this was marked, uh, and there's several passages in the Bible that talk about this process. Usually it lasted, well, it, it, at least in some contexts, it seems to have lasted seven days. And so then at the end of that period, a person would usually um, get up from a sitting position, wash, put on fresh or clean clothes, um, share a meal uh, with uh, friends and relatives, and oftentimes have sex, which I think is interesting, because in the aftermath of loss of life, there is an action which affirms life. Mm. And then one would go back and take up the occupations of daily living. Right. And if you look at the epilogue, that is what happens. Yeah. Uh, not every one of those are detailed, but Job's friend, uh, Job's relatives come. He shares a meal with him. He accepts uh, a, a, a financial contribution from them. Uh, implicitly, he has sex with his wife because they have more children. And his affairs, even though it says that God blesses him, um, I don't think all of these cattle and sheep fall out of the air. Uh, it. Job will have had to have re-engaged his activities as a person who not only is responsible for himself, but for the well-being of his entire extended family. Yeah. It's so, amazing how abbreviated yeah. all that is, right? It's yeah, like you, have yeah. to, you have to supply that he resumed all these activities before he has these children yeah. And then he did the farming and, yeah. you know, all the agricultural work before he multiplied his, you know, yeah. cattle yeah. and all that. Yeah. yeah. And, and there again, I think that um, it, this is a story which doesn't want to spell it all out for us yeah. and, and leaves us because, again, Job doesn't ever say another word in the epilogue. And so we do have to just spend some time thinking about what are the significance of the actions. But I the but the key word I think and what what uh takes me in the direction of saying Job says I am comforted is that it's the bookend to his failure to be comforted earlier. Now that sends us back into thinking, what in the world in those divine speeches <laughs> leads him to be comforted? Not in the sense of everything is okay, but in the sense of 
I see that the world is not the world I thought it was. I see that the world is probably not even the world I wanted it to be and still would like for it to be, probably. But this is the world that is. And now I either have a choice. I can stay on my ash heap or I can say, this is a world in which I'm willing to live. This is a world in which I'm willing to be in community. Yeah. One of the things that's really helpful about the way you've just put that is that um, it helps to explain why God in the speeches is not all warm and fuzzy. Yeah. (laughs) As you pointed out, uh, to be comforted here is not to feel good. Yeah. It's about giving up the morning ritual and re-entering into life. And so uh, God doesn't have to be warm and fuzzy to. Yeah. Job to realize what life is going to be like, the kind of things that you said. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that helps with some of the difficulty mm-hmm. that people have with yeah. this kind of reading of, of Job's response. Mm-hmm. Another thing to just support that reading for is um, Nacham, that Hebrew word. Mm-hmm. It does appear several times in the book, and every mm-hmm. other time, I think comfort is a better yeah. mm-hmm. understanding. One prominent one is chapter 16, verse 2. Job is mm-hmm. saying to the friends, mm-hmm. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all, right? Yeah. That same word there. Yeah. So it's pointing to what you said at the beginning in chapter two, the friends come and they have this responsibility mm-hmm. to comfort him, to yeah. help him re-enter into community, put his mourning aside, and they do this terrible job of it. Yeah. And so finally, God has to step in and do yeah. the job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I help. I think helps really pull the whole book uh, together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still. I mean, I, and I, I'm not fully sure that this is any more of a wrap up than <laughs> okay. the um, than the yeah. epilogue is. Uh, it, Job does make that decision to say, "Yes, I will live again in this world," but I think that there are some residual tensions. Sure. Um, Joe, well, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, as soon as I said, yeah. it pulls the whole book together, I thought, well, <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, it does in the sense that it, it uh, gives us those, those places that we have to say, these things are connected, yeah. but it's still going, but every time, this is what I love about the book, every time we think we've made it harmonious, there's something about it that will disturb that sense of now i've got it i don't have to read this ever again (laughs) yes and one of those examples is right here because we've got 42 6 and then suddenly we move into a different genre altogether we move from poetry to prose um, and then what we encounter here in verses seven and eight is also very hard to to yeah connect with the rest of the book but before we get to seven and eight specifically could you talk a little bit about that jolting genre switch here because that's mm-hmm. one of the big things that you explore in the yeah. book what does that do for us as readers mm-hmm. um <clears throat> well i i think that the, to have the prologue and the epilogue i here's an exercise that i oftentimes do at the beginning of a class is that i will literally cut and paste the prologue and the epilogue uh and uh give it to students and say forget you know the book of Job in the Bible. Just read this. Now, it looks like we've got a little gap in the middle. How would you fill it in? And what they say is, 
okay, well, after all these things, the friends show up and apparently they were, um, uh, they were saying, um, bad things about God. And like Job's wife had been uh, arguing him to give up his piety and Job, then he must have continued the same way that he did with his wife saying, oh, no, you're wrong. I'm going to do. And then at the end, uh, Job has, if you will, passed his test and everything can we can finish up. That's the coherent story, which, you know, you may have problems with it, but it hangs together. By giving us the divine speeches and Job's apparent recognition of something that he thinks that has shifted him and saying that he's comforted, then we may think, oh, okay, it was a rocky start, but now we've got a coherent book. This is a story about a learning curve, and it's a steep learning curve, but we've made it. And then you get the prose coming back in, and it just wrecks that sense of coherency because now we're hearing the beginning and but the end doesn't fit anymore because of what's in the middle and so we're disconcerted and this probably brings us to seven and eight (laughs) that's right so we're at seven and eight which is god's verdict right yeah and i'm gonna read that for us after the lord had spoken these words to job the lord said to eliphaz the temanite My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Mm -hmm. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done." How is it possible, Carol, (laughs) that the one who, you know, rails at God, Job, and charges, and whom God has charged with speaking without knowledge, is correct, in fact, (laughs) and the friends, on the other hand, who defended God are not right. Yeah, like I say, this, this is why so many scholars for so many years said, Oh no, we've just got a bad cut and paste job here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the the uh, editor just didn't know what he was doing and and gave us, yeah, because um, this would fit if we just had the prose story that was the way we described it a minute ago. Now we've got a flat contradiction, and some people have tried to soften that by the phrase that you read is "what is correct," and they've said, "Oh, or what is right." They say, "Oh, no, no. Uh, what it means is correctly, in the sense that Job was sincere and honest and open, and the friends were um, a little hypocritical." But the word doesn't mean correctly or rightly. It means content. You know, mm-hmm. the content. So we got a flat contradiction. So the word means that the content of Job's speech is right. I think this is, yeah, the people have argued this differently, but I find that fairly persuasive that we can't can't give ourselves an out by turning it into an adverb. So we got to deal with it. And and frankly, that's where I'm always suspicious of myself when I find myself uh, (laughs) doing the exegesis in a way that's going to lessen the problems. This is not a book that lets you off the hook. So we got to go with the tougher reading, which is God is saying, Job spoke what is right of me. He may, 
Job may be speaking what is right of God. After all, the divine speeches, one of the radical things that they say is that um, the world is not set up to ensure justice. The world is not set up with human beings at the center so that God's actions are a response to what people do, rewarding the good, punishing the bad. In the divine speeches, humans are pretty marginalized, and there is uh, God praises and celebrates the creatures that are associated with the chaotic uh, and those things that terrify ancient Israelites. So, how would we put this in modern terms? God is the God of viruses as much as the God of human beings. We don't have a privileged position, but Job has also, uh, in many respects, been pointing some of this out. Now, some of his words are directly accusatory that God is hostile and uh, violently aggressive, and there's no basis in the book um, that, that that would be necessarily a correct reading. Um, uh, but nevertheless, a good deal of what Job has said um, is probably something that most readers still feel drawn into. These mm. are things that don't feel right. Yeah. about where we find ourselves. Uh, these are things that we're not done with those feelings. We're not done with being angry at God sometimes. And so having that little contradiction, it sort of keeps us from forgetting how drawn we were to what Job was saying. Yeah. And that's why, you know, there's no way we can smooth this out into a complicated uh, explanation that's going to make all the little pieces fit together? Nope. <laughs> it's just going to sit there as contradictory. Right. right. Yeah. But in that, it, it fits into this broader tension that we encounter across the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. of, yes. Mm -hmm. Of these people who are willing to accuse God and yeah. argue with God. Mm -hmm. and, and Job actually fits yes. into this this broader tradition. We already looked at Genesis 18. Yeah. And there Abraham says to God, shall not the judge of mm -hmm. all the earth yeah. do what is just, right? Yes, so, yes. Uh, so that that tension that Carol's pointing to yeah. is a tension that is it's there throughout the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. And so Job, yeah. there's a sense, I don't know if this fits within that word that's translated correct mm -hmm. or right. Uh-huh. Uh, he He's speaking within a, an acceptable or accepted yeah. at least tradition yeah. of talking to God. Whether yeah. that means every little detail of yeah. what Job yeah. says uh, yeah. is theologically shakes out or not. I'm not. I'm not sure if we have to say that or. What yeah. do you think? Carol, well, we do? I, no. What I think is is important here is that, uh, and I think you're exactly right by saying what we have here is a microcosm of attention that's throughout the, the Hebrew Bible. And um, that is, I mean, in the divine speeches, divine speeches are radical because they seem to challenge the notion that God is fundamentally about justice and the moral order. A lot of the Bible gives warrant for saying that. Mm -hmm. But these speeches also 
articulate another view of God's relationship to creation um, in which it's not clear where we place God's investment in justice. Hmm. It's not necessarily that it God doesn't necessarily show up and says, say, I'm not in the justice business, but neither can we assume that it's the center, the privileged point. Now, human beings, we are in the just, God has commanded us to do justly. And this is where I think Job experiences his world, I think, is finally tragically shaped in the sense that tragedy is is the occurrence of when you have, uh, there are two contradictory realities and you have to live at the intersection of them. And so on the one hand, yes, human beings, by understanding ourselves to be in the likeness and image of God, are called to make moral communities. And we understand that to be grounded in the divine. But we also look at this wider frame of creation in which God is a God of viruses as well as the God of human beings. And it's just not so simple to make a single picture out of all of this. And that's why I think Job, it's not that he says, oh, happy day, I understand everything. Now I can go back and live in contentment. He's going to always be living in the tension of justice is not the only principle in the cosmos. I'm going to bring my children into a world. I've already lost. I couldn't protect my first family. I lost them. But I'm going to bring more children into this world, knowing that life may not treat them fairly. Awful things will, in fact, happen to them, just as good things will happen to them. As Job said early on, shall we accept what's good and not also accept what's bad from the hand of God? And so I think it's living in that tension that this contradiction is trying to direct us back to. Yeah. Now, more briefly, we didn't talk about how the friends are wrong. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just just briefly, so we can move on to the the epilogue. How are the friends wrong? They seem to be defending God. Mm -hmm. Um, They have sometimes been called... uh, it has been said of them that they have basically a therapeutic response to the problem of evil. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even though most people say, oh, well, they blame Job and they, they blame the victim. Not entirely. The, the thing is, that they just think that's the wrong way to set up the problem. Uh, the issue is, well, let's see what we can do about the situation. Uh, let's. Um, Let's let's give you some strategies for coping. And while that's not exactly bad, I mean, it, it can be very helpful. Um, it's 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 probably not an adequate uh, theological response to Job's situation. And so, if there is a sense in which, in the whole book as a whole, not just if we cast them as the blasphemers, but in the book as a whole, if we go back and we have to think, well, what is so off about them? Then it's probably that a merely therapeutic response doesn't finally do justice to Job's situation or who God is. So I don't, I don't know that I can really answer that, yeah. but that's sort of where I find them 
uh, perhaps most problematic. Great. Now, uh, Carol, in verses 14 to 15, mm-hmm. uh, we're told the names of Job's oh, yes. daughters. He named mm-hmm. them Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. Thanks for giving me the names to read. Well. <laughs> <laughs> in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. Why is it, Carol, that only Job's daughters are named and not, yeah. and not his sons? Well, we don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, um, daughters, though, um, they were certainly loved and cherished in uh, Israelite antiquity, as in every culture. Um, They didn't have the same kind of status and role in continuing the family. So, this is one of the few details we get that would give us an insight into Job's state of mind. And so, I think it would have been diluted if we had gotten the names of all of the seven sons as well. So, narratively, uh, this stands out and says, pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. Now, what's important is the meanings of those names. He names uh, Jemima, Dove, and um, uh, the the second one, um, now I've lost her name, Kezia, yeah, uh, which means cinnamon. And then my favorite, the third, Karen Hapuk, which means box of eyeshadow. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about the, um, when um, way back in Samuel, when um, the priest Eli's daughter in law gives birth uh, in a very troubled time in Israel. Uh, She names him Ichabod, the glory has departed. So, people's names reflected the context of their births. And so, here, Job is giving his daughters beautiful names, names that have to do with um, sensuous elements, the fragrance of cinnamon, the beauty of uh, eyeshadow. Um, so, he, this is a life-affirming gesture, mm-hmm. and that's one of the few clues we have about his state of mind. That's amazing to think about. I've never thought about it this way before, but that idea that Job actually can see beauty in the world. Yes. Which yeah. when you reach like chapter 19, for example, <laughs> the first you know half of chapter 19, it's impossible to imagine him oh. naming daughters these kinds of no. things. No. And if you think about, I mean, people who have endured great um, losses, uh, it can take a long time before, I mean, even someone who's undergone a major depression, one of the things that's most characteristic is your inability to feel pleasure and joy. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this comes as an indication of someone who has not just grudgingly gone back into life, but has found in ways that we are never told explicitly how it happens, he has found the ability to re-embrace life. And there's something very, very fascinating about that little detail. Yeah, it's rich and encouraging. What about the little detail about him giving an inheritance to his daughters? 
daughters along with their brothers. Do you think that that's significant as well? Um, yes. And here's one of those places where, you know, I am inclined to read it according to my desires. I don't know <laughs> whether or not this is the intent of the author, but, um, you know, uh, I like the fact that uh, typically women didn't inherit unless there were no sons. And so here, Job seems to be um, embracing them. Uh, it's a kind of a non-hierarchical uh, way of looking at his family. Uh, and you have to wonder if the divine speeches that that showed Job the beauty of all of these creatures that he had either looked down on at, or, or feared or whatever, and God talks about them in terms of their beauty and magnificence, maybe it's transformed Job's way of looking at the world as well. And he's no longer so tied into the traditions and norms and rules of his society. So I think there's something joyous in that, too. Yeah, joyous and, and generous and yes, gracious. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we're now to the final two verses of the book yes. of Job. Uh, so 42, 16 yeah. to 17. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children for generations. And Job died old and full of days. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that as a conclusion to this magnificent book? Yeah. Um I really like it. Um, I mean, I um, you do have the sense here again. I mean, the 140 years, it's twice the traditional lifespan. So, there is a sense, again, I think this goes with that theme that we were talking about of abundance and mm -hmm. of life uh, uh, that is um, that after the loss and the tragedy, life returns in abundance. And so, um, also uh, to see your children, uh, four generations of, of uh, children and grandchildren, um, it's again, fulfillment. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and it's, it's um, the, the last line is literally, I mean, it, to have Job died, you know, we, uh, the, the life, life isn't complete until it is lived to the end. And the end of life was considered extremely important in antiquity. Um, and so, to have Job satisfied with days, literally, um, uh, that is, uh, again, a suggestion that he embraces his life. Um, and so, um, in that regard, we do get, if you will, a rounding off of the book, mm -hmm. not in the sense of, oh, and they all lived happily ever after, um, because we found so many spots where we think there's a lot. This process of coming back into life is not easy. And um, we've seen the possibilities of Job still having to negotiate what he wishes life was like and what he has to recognize its life. So I don't think that it's just a happily ever after, but instead it is one in which meaningfulness and significance and embeddedness is still possible. Yeah. And so I, I find it very satisfying. Well, if a, a life isn't complete until it's lived to the end, a podcast on Job is not complete <laughs> until it's podcasted to the end. Yes. <laughs> we want to thank you, Carol, for sure. 
leading us through this last <laughs> chapter of Job. We just have one more question. Yeah, for yeah Carol, drawing on the genre that you know biblical scholars like to use of the book blurb right? yes, you're an yes. expert in genre so you'll be able to dive right into this um is there a book or it could be a movie or some kind of activity you've picked up or something that you'd like to blurb for us and for our listeners so that they could you know uh pick it up for themselves yeah yeah i will i will it's something that actually um a friend recommended to me a couple of weeks ago um you know, I mean, we've all been just bombarded during these past two years with what seems like overwhelming um, experiences and news of tragic events and things that make us anxious. And um, it, it, our mental health has it has been a struggle for people to for, to deal with all of these. And so someone suggested to me this book by um Pima Chodron, who is a Buddhist teacher in the United States, when things fall apart, uh, which is, uh, uh, it's called Heart Advice for Difficult Times. And mm -hmm. it takes a, a I mean, it, it's a, obviously written from a Buddhist perspective about how not to run away from those difficult times, and but how to live within them. And I think it's a very insightful book, either for Buddhists, for the Buddhist curious among the uh, <laughs> uh, other people, or for, for people who have never encountered Buddhism at all. Um, so, yes, I would say it's a challenging book, uh, and uh, I think, but I think it's one that is very timely and goes well, I think, with the reading of the book of Job. Yeah, I'd be curious. Did you see any resonances there between reading that book and Job? Um, there, I, I, it would be superficial of me, I think, to try to draw connections too closely. But the fact that um, neither one of them um, backs away mm -hmm. from the fact of an awful situation and trying to live within that situation. So they, they yeah, they'd they. They would make very interesting dialogue partners, but that would take longer than our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carol, we want to thank you for being a very interesting dialogue sure. partner uh, in this episode. Mm -hmm. And for you listeners, if this journey through Job has given you a new appreciation for beauty in the world, and you think maybe this podcast might be part of that beauty, or at least uh, you could be, you might be grateful that it's opened your eyes to that beauty. One way that you could express your gratitude. They could give us comfort. And it would give us some comfort. <laughs> right? yeah. is you could go to, to um, Apple Podcasts. You could give us a rating. Uh, one of those five-star ratings would be much appreciated because it helps other people find the podcast. Or you could share this with, with someone else, share with a friend or a neighbor. Uh, so we're really grateful for that. And as always, you can connect with us on our website or on Twitter uh, or on our Facebook group. Ask questions, and we'll be happy to try and address those mm -hmm. as we can. But until next time... Thanks for joining us on the journey. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Stanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Cameron Thomas and Vanessa Kynes for lending us their voices, the team in the Faculty Success Center for their guidance, and our student assistants, Harrison Pike, Amy Johnston, and Whitney Fix for their help with production, editing, and promotion. <laughs>